0: this morning, brethren, if you turn back to that passage, Jeremiah chapter 5, and as we listen to it read, there's a whole lot more in that chapter than we're going to get to today. In fact, we're just going to focus on the first few verses. I'm just going to read the first three verses once more, and then we're going to pray together. Run to and fro this, through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know, and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, is there anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth? And I will pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O oh Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we again bless and thank you and praise you for uh, as we have celebrated both the first coming and looking for that second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ without sin in that blessed day blessed for all those who know and love you in truth. So we pray. Gather your saints. Gather your saints through the gospel in this time, this age. Oh, Father, this day, as we've already prayed, use your word and call them in and generate in them that faith that overcomes the world. Father, we do pray that you'd help us in this hour to understand your word. Search us with it and give us understanding and faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In an intriguing uh, little book entitled The Young Pilgrim, written by an anonymous authoress who styled herself A-L-O-E, a lady of England, the story is told of a young man named Mark Dowling, Now, this young man was raised in a very ungodly home. It was marked by uh, thievery and knavery, as they say, by ignorance and begging. And that's what they uh, secured, what means, what scant means this family lived on. In the story, in the goodness and providence of God, this young man, Mark, is brought to faith. And he is determined thereafter to live out his Christian faith as a young Christian man living in the mid-1800s of England. And he's determined to uh, earn an honest living. And so he he finds uh, a grocer, a man named Mr. Lowe. And Mr. Lowe takes him into his employment. Mr. Lowe had a reputation of being a church-going, faithful, godly man. And I pick up the story one evening... Things begin to change for Mark Dowling. It's a bit of a lengthy reading, and it's a children's book, but I think we can all learn from children's books. Mm -hmm. Many simple and profound lessons. What are you doing, said Mark, with a feeling of curiosity. I'm mixing this and that, as you see, replied Radley. Radley was another one of Mr. Lowe's servants pointing to two heaps of what looked like coffee on the counter. Why should you mix them? Oh, ask no questions, and I will tell you no stories, said Radley, quite dropping his usual formal manner, with a laughing look in his eye, which startled the boy. Do you mean, is it possible, exclaimed Mark, his face flushing with indignation as he spoke, that you are mixing chicory with coffee in order to deceive "'our master's customers? "'You are very green, or you would know "'that it is constantly done. "'It cannot be right,' said Mark, "'to sell an article under a false name "'and get a false price for it, too. "'Surely Mr. Lowe does not know what you are doing. "'Oh, you most simple of simpletons,' laughed Radley, "'do you suppose that I'm doing this for my own diversion, "'to serve my pious master at his will?' You do it by his orders, then? Of course I do. I could never have believed that he could have been guilty of such a thing, exclaimed Mark, more shocked and disgusted by the hypocrisy of Lowe than by any of the open wickedness that he had ever witnessed. And you, Radley, how can your conscience let you do this wrong? My conscience is my master's. I only obey what he commands. Your conscience is your master's? Oh, no exclaimed Mark, you will have to answer for yourself before God. If I refuse to do this, I should have to leave the grocer's service. Better leave his service than to leave the service of God. Now you see in there a lesson how a young man who is led to trust in what he believed was a godly older man and his judgment and his dealings can have all that idealism smashed in a single evening. Now I suggest that there's some of that going on in our passage today in Jeremiah chapter 5. To proceed this morning, we're going to go in this, this manner. We're going to have a few prefatory remarks and then some historical background to this passage and then a brief expedition of, exposition of the text, and then some applications. Before we engage in any exposition and application of the Old Testament, especially the writings of the prophets, we need to be reminded of some parameters, some qualifications, some guide rails that we don't err on the right hand or on the left in our understanding of what the prophets are saying or the Old Testament in general. To utterly disregard the relevance or the pertinence of the Old Testament would be to err on one side, nor to take de facto, de jure, all the promises, commands, and warnings of the Old Testament as having direct and immediate application to us in the church or to us in the nation would be to err on the other side. So to guide us, A few preliminary prefatory remarks. Five things. First of all, God's relationship to and dealings with the nation of Israel are unique. Any promises to or pronouncements upon that nation made by the prophets must take this fact into account. And we're going to be flipping around for a little bit. Turn with me to Psalm 147. We'll flip around a little bit and then we'll settle down once we get to the exposition. Numerous verses could be cited to make this point that God had a unique relationship, a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. Psalm 147, verse 19. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, or we might say any other nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Turn with me also to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14. We'll read the first couple verses. Moses writes, You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then if you turn to Deuteronomy 26 and verse 16. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God and that you will walk in His ways and keep His statutes, His commandments and His judgments and that you will obey His voice. Also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be His special people just as He promised you that you should keep all his commandments, and that he will set you on high above all the nations which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. So God's relationship to and dealings with the nation of Israel are unique. He entered into a special covenant with them. We need to bear that in mind in any reading of the Old Testament. I would refer you to Romans chapter 9, verse 3 through 5 as well. We won't read it, though. In making use of the prophetic writings, therefore, we are not at liberty to make free, unqualified use of the promises and predictions concerning Israel and apply them to the United States or to any other nation or even to the church. Sometimes the church has been accused of doing that, and we need to strike that balance. Second thing to bear in mind as we look at any Old Testament passage, especially the prophets, nevertheless, even though that is true, this is not at all to say that the writings of the Old Testament, and of the prophets in particular, are only concerning the nation of Israel, exclusively for her alone, and have no lessons for us Gentiles as well. For he is not the God of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles." and thus his kingdom rules over all he is not a local tribal deity like the idols of the heathen he is the creator of the ends of the earth and therefore there's lessons for us in these writings let me refer you just to a couple verses in the book of psalms psalm 22 psalm 22 and verse 28 We'll back up to verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. There is the hope, the promise of the calling of the Gentiles. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Turn also to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. And we'll read verse three and four. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Romans three twenty nine, Psalm one hundred three verse nineteen. We could look at as well as Mel well as many others. All of the major and many of the minor prophets make reference or prophecies concerning God's governing of all the nations, not just Israel, not just Judah and Israel, Jew as well as Gentile. Jeremiah himself prophesied concerning God's judging of Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, Elam, and Babylon itself. So God concerns himself and is watching over and governing over all the nations. He is not the God of the Jews only. So we need to bear that in mind as well. Thirdly, by way of prefatory remark, God judges all nations, Jews and Gentiles, according to uniform and universal righteous principles originating in his own attributes. Originating in his own attributes. Look at the Psalms again with me. Psalm 9, this time. And there are numerous references in the Psalms to God's judging by the principles that emanate from his own person and nature and attributes. These are just a few. Psalm 9, we'll begin at verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Turn with me also to Psalm 11, just a page or so over. In verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Uh, Psalm 96, if you will. Psalm 96. What are we underscoring? That the Lord governs in righteousness over all the nations and executes its judgment In his wisdom and timing as he pleases. Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is also firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the wood will rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. If we had time, I'd turn you to Isaiah chapter 40 as well, the Lord's dealings with the nations. Fourthly, the moral laws by which God judges men and nations are known by conscience, by natural revelation. They are known to the sons of men in general. Now, they were specifically and peculiarly given, as we read already, to Jacob, to the people of Israel, by special revelation. But all men know by natural revelation and by conscience what the law, the moral law of God is, so that, in consequence of which, communications can be made. To the nations in general, God can appeal to them on the basis of righteousness and say to them, are not your ways unequal? Are not your ways wicked? And they should be able to assess and judge them. God can communicate to them, uh, reason with them. Come now, let us reason together. God is able to do that because he has made known through conscience, through natural revelation, his ways and his words. Now, numerous passages come to mind. Let's just look at a couple staying in Jeremiah. The one, perhaps, that comes to mind is Romans 1, about how uh, the invisible things of him are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, so that, in consequence of which, they, the nations, we, the people of the world, are without excuse... When we violate God's word and principle. Jeremiah, gotta get back there. Jeremiah chapter, well, we'll start in chapter nine. Jeremiah chapter nine, in verse eight and nine, where we read this The tongue is an arrow shot out, it speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart, he lies in wait. Now, here God is looking even at the secret sins of our heart. And then he says this, verse 9 Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? A nation what? A nation who is in heart and indeed, in deed and very deed, violating the law of God. Shall not God take vengeance on them, whether they be Jews or Gentile nations? Look with me also uh, back to chapter 2 of Jeremiah. and verse 9, Therefore I will bring charges against you, says the Lord. And against your children's children I will bring charges. For pass by beyond the coast of Cyprus and see and send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this. And be horribly afraid, be very desolate, says the Lord. And he goes on, but we'll stop there. Here the point is, even the nations know better than to be unfaithful to their supposed gods. Here the true and living God has covenanted with the nation of Israel, and they have turned against him and turned their back on him. Uh, Look with me also. In verse four of this chapter, Jeremiah chapter two. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me, have followed idols and have become idolaters? Now think of what the Lord is asking. He's asking the people of Israel to judge if there's injustice On the part of God, by what basis are they going to judge whether there's injustice on the part of God unless they know the standard of justice that God reveals in his word, especially, but also has revealed to them in conscience and by nature. So God has revealed his standards of righteousness both to us by special revelation and to the heathen in general. Uh, through natural revelation. Fifthly, fifthly, finally, by prefatory remark, we stand in a unique and peculiar vantage point. We have the great benefit of standing here under the new covenant, and all the blessings and fulfillment of so much of what failed under the old covenant, we find fulfilled in the new covenant. So we have this great honor and privilege from which we may and we ought is both a privilege and a duty to assimilate and profit from all that is inscripturated in the Old Testament. I'm just going to turn you to one of those two familiar passages that in the New Testament that tell us this. Romans 15, verse 4, and I would reference 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 as well. But Romans 15, verse 4. Here he writes, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. He refers the people back to all that was written in the Old Testament to say, Those things are written for what? For our learning, for our profit. So we dare not neglect the study of the Old Testament. We ne'er not neglect the prophets and their voices and all the lessons that we can garner and gather from them. It has bearing for us upon whom the ends of the world are come. In summary, then, we need to bear these five things in mind. God had a peculiar covenant relationship with Israel. So when we read the Old Testament, we need to bear that in mind. Not everything transfers uh, on a one-to-one ratio to us. Nevertheless, number two, he was and is the sovereign judge of all the nations. We serve the same God, the God of the Jews and of the Gentiles, and he governs them all. Thirdly, God governs in righteousness. God governs in righteousness by uniform laws. Fourth, those laws are known to all men in conscience by natural revelation and with greater clarity through special revelation, first to his people Israel and to all the church uh, through the revelation of the scriptures. Fifthly, it is our privilege and duty to benefit from the Old Testament scriptures. Well, that brings us closer. We're getting closer to our passage. I'm trying to keep an eye on the time. Uh, Some historical background to this Jeremiah chapter 5. First of all, a little bit about this man, this prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah grew up in the city of Anathoth. Anathoth was a small town just three miles north of Jerusalem. It was one of only three Levitical cities out of the tribe of Benjamin. A Levitical city was set aside for the Levites to dwell in, and then they had uh, the privilege of using the common lands to grow their crops to graze their animals, and so forth. Jeremiah was the son of a priest, Hilkiah. He may even have been the high priest. He may even have been the high priest who found the law in the temple in the days of Josiah. But I would say it's probably doubtful. Hilkiah was probably a common name, but nevertheless, Jeremiah grew up in this little city, this little hamlet, this little town of Anathoth, which was a Levitical city, and all his neighbors and his father were Levites, and they would have studied in depth the law of God and the procedures that were required for them to execute, to uh, fulfill their duties in making the sacrifice according to their terms and according to their rounds at the temple. We have in chapter 1 Jeremiah's calling to the prophetic office. Jeremiah is calling to the prophetic office. He at first objects. He says, Lord, I am but a youth. If you have an old King James that says, I am but a child. I can't speak. I can't take on this responsibility of somehow being a prophet to the nation of Judah, to the people to speak your word. I am but a youth. Now the word there, youth, is used Uh, in kind of a pretty broad spectrum in the Old Testament, we refer to an infant all the way up to someone in his later teen ages. So we would speculate Jeremiah is probably in his mid to later teens. Mid to later teens. We learn here also in chapter 1 of the time of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry, beginning in the 13th year of Josiah. When Josiah was 21 years of age, and he was five years, and it was five years, I'm sorry, before Josiah begins to enact those reforms of purifying and purging the nation of its idolatry and the rest. His ministry, Jeremiah's ministry, extended into the Babylonian exile some 40 plus years. There's a wonderful painting that you may have seen of Rembrandt a picture of Jeremiah weeping over the city of Jerusalem, burning in the background. But it portrays him as a very old man. Jeremiah, if he began his ministry in his later teens, was now in his mid-50s. He's not much older than Philippe, so I doubt if he looked as old as that picture if you've ever seen it. But it is a telling picture in that it reflects... The grief with which Jeremiah wept over the destruction of the city. What happens to Jeremiah in his latter days? Okay, the Babylonians come. Uh, there's a rebellious group of people who say, we're not going to Babylon. And Jeremiah told them to go to Babylon, to submit to the king of Babylon. They refused. They gathered Jeremiah by stealth, so to speak, and they all fled off to Egypt. What happens to him after that? Well, we're left uh, to tradition. According to one tradition, Jeremiah was stoned to death in Tappanese in Egypt by the Jews. He probably continued to exhort them to return and submit to Babylon. Another tradition suggests that Jeremiah and Baruch fled Egypt when the Babylonians eventually came down there to destroy The Egyptians, they fled and made their way either back to Judea or all the way back to Babylon. But we don't know for sure. But we do know this. Jeremiah had an extensive 40-plus year period of prophetic ministry. Well, what specifically was the time of Jeremiah's prophecy here in chapter 5? According to chapter 1, verse 2, Jeremiah began his ministry in the reign of Josiah in his 13th year. At what time precisely the utterances of chapter 1 through 5 or chapters 1 through 6 were given, we cannot dogmatically establish, but it would appear if you look with me at chapter 3, verse 16, he says, I get to the right chapter, chapter 3, verse 16. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord. No, no, that's not what I want either. <laughs> I'm sorry, 3 verse 6. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and every green tree and there played the harlot. So chapter 3, it's still during the reign of Josiah, that he's prophesying and there's not a real big change in these things until we get to chapter 7 verse 1 so it is most likely that chapter 5 this prophecy is given during the reign of Josiah one other thing to to help us establish that is in 2nd Chronicles chapter 20 35 2nd Chronicles chapter 35 We read of the death of Josiah in verse 24 of that chapter, 2 Chronicles 35, verse 24. His servants therefore took him, him being Josiah, out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And then verse 25, Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. So by this time, Jeremiah's reputation is well enough established just by the end of the life of Josiah as a prophet that it's noted that he specifically lamented and mourned at the passing of Josiah. So that serves to underscore my contention that chapter 5 was likely in the days of Josiah. Third thing, a little bit of the history of Israel. God had brought them out of the land of Egypt, settled them in the land of Canaan. They had been united until the death of Solomon, when the nation was divided into the northern and southern tribes, Israel and Judah, as they're often referred to. The southern tribes of Judah had been spared the destruction and exile that befell the northern kingdom of Israel by the hand of the Assyrians. You'll remember the intercession of King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah had prevailed to avert the blast of God's judgment upon Judah at that time. However, King Manasseh, The son of Hezekiah thereafter foisted upon the nation a level of debauchery, blood guiltiness, and idolatry that would unalterably seal her future destruction. And even though Manasseh himself repented in his latter days, the damage we might say was already done and God's determination to judge the people and to send them into exile had already been made. Manasseh's son Ammon for two years continued in the wickedness of his father and increased more and more. He in turn was succeeded by Josiah at the tender age of eight, but at 16 we read that Josiah began to seek the God of his father David. And at 20, in the 12th year of his reign, he began that purging of the nation from its idolatry and reforming the nation in the 18th year of Josiah's reign he set about repairing the temple, which had become quite dilapidated by the idolatrous use that had been made of it. During those repairs, the Book of the Law was found, including the Book of Deuteronomy, if not the whole of the Pentateuch, and Josiah, on the basis of that, made even further reforms, even re-establishing the sacrifices and re-establishing the Passover and so forth. Fourthly, Uh, The state of Israel at the time, then, of Jeremiah's prophecy. uh, Judah, having escaped and outlasted the Assyrian threat, now for the past 80-some years, had lived in peace since this Assyrian demise. But at the same time, they had grown overconfident that no evil could befall them. When we get to chapter 7 of Jeremiah, they talk about the temple of the Lord are these We trust in the temple. No evil can befall us because we're the faithful remnant whom God has preserved. But such was not the case. Babylon was as yet no great threat and Egypt, they vainly believed, was a sure ally to them. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 33 through 37. Trying to speed up here a little bit. Verse 33, he says, Why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore, you have also taught the wicked women your ways. Also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but plainly on all these things. Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Okay, They had a vain confidence that they were innocent. Behold, I will plead my case against you, because you say, I have not sinned. Why do you gad about so much to change your ways? And also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. They were trusting Egypt to help them if Babylon ever became a serious threat to them, but it was a vain confidence as well. Israel in her early days had been the special object of the Lord's affection and jealous protection. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, 1 through 3 and 7 through 8. We won't read it for space of time. The land now, however, was given to idolatry, referred to as spiritual harlotry and adultery. They were a thoroughly pluralistic society, if you will. But not only were the people given to idolatry, to spiritual adultery, but also to a host of, Of other evils that Jeremiah addresses. Covetousness, physical adultery, deceit, and injustice. Into this whole context then, Jeremiah speaks his prophecies and specifically that of our text. So we're going to look at the exposition of this text under five quick headings. The Lord's Commission, Jeremiah's Doleful Confession, Jeremiah's attempted mitigation, Jeremiah's shattered idealism, and then the inevitable predicted judgment. The Lord's commission, Jeremiah's doleful confession, Jeremiah's attempted mitigation, and Jeremiah's shattered idealism. Turn with me back then to Jeremiah 5. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. The Lord commissions Jeremiah with these words, Run to and fro. Through the streets of Jerusalem, see now, and know, and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon it. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. In order to demonstrate to Jeremiah, and by him to all of Judah, and to the nations for that matter, that his coming wrath upon Judah and upon Jerusalem was just and right, God commissions Jeremiah to make a thorough search of the city of Jerusalem. He goes first to the streets, that is to say the narrow streets, if you will, where the poor and the common people resided in the city of Jerusalem. And then he was to go to the open places, or the open square where commerce was conducted, and where the rich and upper class would tend to be, uh, as well as the common people. There he was to seek for a man who would stand for justice, not merely to speak of it, not merely to assent to it, agree to it in his heart, agree to it in his mind, agree to it with his mouth, but to work and act upon it, to speak truth and righteousness, and to live after it, to labor for uprightness, to give the effort, to take the risk, in whatever sphere or station they found themselves. For if such a man could be found, God was ready to pardon, ready to turn away his fierce wrath that he had pronounced upon the nation, turn away from it, and despair them if such a man could be found. He adds also in verse 2 that he was not looking for mere pretenders. Notice what he says. Though they say as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. He wasn't just looking for a people who drew near to him with his lips, but their hearts were far from him. He was looking for a true man of God. That's what he was looking for. Mere claimants to righteousness, no. For a host of them could be found throughout the city. But the Lord knew they weren't what they were outwardly, inwardly. They professed to be uh, true believers, faithful people of Israel. But inwardly, they were not. The priests we read elsewhere were corrupt. And the prophets we read were false and spoke a vision of their own hearts. There was none righteous No, not one. This God knew full well, but only wanted to make it patent. He wanted to make it clear, crystal clear to Jeremiah and through Jeremiah to all the nation. There would be no cause for doubt that the nation was corrupt throughout. Now, an objection might be raised here at this point. But certainly there were many righteous in the city, were there? there was after all Jeremiah his faithful and able assistant Baruch Hilkiah his father probably still alive and king Josiah himself how would we answer that aren't there some faithful in the city well a couple interpreters give a different a few different answers to this one is that the language of the prophet is hyperbolic he's just exaggerating For the sake of making a point. Now, I don't believe that was the case when Abraham argued with God over the city of Sodom, and so I don't believe it would pertain here either. Some have suggested that such men as Josiah and Baruch were kind of an exceptional class. Okay, we've already got these, but go and see if there's anyone else. If there's anybody else who's really faithful, see if you can find them. That may well be the explanation, Error the absolute interpretation. None is righteous. No, not one. And we've seen already that the Lord is not just looking at their outward activities and profession of their lips. He is looking at the heart. And Jeremiah, as he begins to search it out, sees more than just what they say on their lips, but he sees what they're thinking and feeling and acting in their heart. And that brings us in the second place to Jeremiah's doleful confession. His doleful confession, verse three. O well, Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock, they have refused to return as he began to search out and began to probe the people of Jerusalem in the narrow streets, what did he find? He found that they were not responding to God's warnings. They were not responding to God's corrections. They were not turning their hearts unto the true and the living God. In fact, they were hardening their faces. They refused to return. They refused to go back they refused to leave off their superstitious idolatry or whatever other corruptions and sins they were engaged in. Or if their outward life were somewhat respectable, he could still see that there was not a heart after God in these people. Um, Turn with me back to Jeremiah chapter 3. We'll kind of read where we left off, in verse 6, how they responded to the Lord's dealings. Verse 6 again, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. Now notice, all indications are that Jeremiah is, is of a tender heart, and of a tender spirit, a gracious man, more willing to forgive and to overlook faults. And the Lord has to time and again say, but look, look what they're doing. Are not we that way sometimes? But the Lord has to point out how grievous are the sins that are being committed. Verse seven. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me, the Lord's calling the nation. But she did not return and her treacherous sister saw it. Okay, here he's, he's hearkening back to the days when he warned the northern tribes of Israel to turn, or judgment was coming. Judah, all the while, witnessed these things. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear fear the lord is the beginning of wisdom but she did not fear but went and played the harlot also so it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees and yet for all this her treacherous sister judah has not turned to me with her whole heart but in pretense says the lord We could read on. But there we see how hardened Israel was in heart. And Jeremiah had to have that demonstrated to him time and again so that he could be the vehicle by which it would be shown to the rest of the nation as well. So we come in the third place to Jeremiah's attempted mitigation, his attempted mitigation of Judah's apostasy. He's going to try to downplay it here. Notice what he says, verse 4. Therefore I said, Jeremiah, surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. Jeremiah says, here's the problem. Here's the problem. The poor and ignorant and underprivileged people They haven't heard the truth. They haven't heard the scriptures as they should. It hasn't been faithfully taught to them. They haven't been instructed in it. Therefore, they're hardened against the Lord. But the great men, I'll go to the great men, the priests and the princes and the rulers, and I'll go to them and surely I'll find in them a godly disposition, a heart that wants righteousness and seeks to enact it. That's Jeremiah's attempt to mitigate. Jeremiah attempts to soften the immoral and wicked condition of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who in turn well represented the whole nation of Judah by saying that this was the condition of the lower baser class of men. They did not have the advantages of wealth and especially of instruction in the ways of God. So then he goes... As I said to the great men. Now, as he does so, I want you to bear in mind the background. Here's why we spent so much time on the background. Jeremiah was a teenager, perhaps maybe his early 20s by now, when he's making this prophecy. He had grown up in a Levitical city, surrounded by priests, many of whom were at least perfunctorily faithful to learn their duties under the under the Old Testament to learn their duties and to teach them and to follow them out. His father, perhaps, most likely was a godly man, and he had learned from his example. He had been uh, kept, as it were, in something of a bubble, shielded from all the wickedness that was all around him in the nation, but here, here now he comes. He says, okay, I understand. The poor people, they're ignorant. And they're acting in these ways. But the great people, the priests, the princes, surely, they're of a disposition, a different disposition. But listen what he says, verse 5. I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. But, oh, those biblical buts, but these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. The yoke of what? The yoke of righteousness, the yoke of the law, the bonds that would bind them to the true and the living God. they have broken them off. These, even the great men, had cast them off. You'll remember later when God takes Ezekiel into the inner part of the temple and shows them the princes there worshiping idols in the very temple of God. So much wickedness being going on even by the leaders of the nation. That was, he was blind to. So we come in the fourth place to Jeremiah's shattered idealism. He grew up with this idealistic, if you will, view of the law and of the nation and of all the promises and all the instructions, no doubt, those things were precious to him. But now those things are shattered as he sees the real condition of both the low and and the high classes, both the rich and the poor, both the leaders and those who are led. Jeremiah, we know, is still a young man, and having been raised in the home of a priest, may have well known the way of God, as he describes it, and may well have viewed that great man of the city with a natural youthful naivete. But now this last vestige of idealistic expectation is shattered. Even the great men had broken the gracious yoke of God's law from off them. They had emancipated themselves from obedience to righteousness and wittingly had become slaves of sin. Doubtless, they said the Lord lives, but they swore falsely. Thus their sin was greatly aggravated because they knew better. They had the light of the truth. They had been instructed in so many things. They could even say the Lord lives. Their sins were greatly aggravated because they had sinned against greater light. Well, that leads us in the in the fifth place to the predicted judgment, verse 6. Therefore, because of this, because of the state of the people, because indeed I've looked and searched among the low class, high class, rich and poor, all throughout the city, and I cannot find a righteous man. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the deserts shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces, because their transgressions are many. Their backslidings have increased." And he goes on to speak more of the judgment that is doubtless coming for the people of Israel, for the people of Judah specifically. Now, that leads us in the end to some applications. What can we learn from this? As we said at the beginning, we'll look at these Old Testament passages and what lessons can we take away? First of all, Let us be reminded of this. A thorough searching of a matter well demonstrates the righteousness of God's activities. A thorough searching of a matter will well demonstrate to us God's righteousness in his activities. Why has this happened? Job had to ask that question. Why, why, why? We have to ask, why has the Lord done this in his providence, in his righteousness and judgment? if we're faithful to look at those things through the lens of Scripture, we will find ourselves saying, you have been righteous in all your ways, and just in all your doings, even though it might shatter what idealistic views we might have had as young believers, as young people, as those who are hopeful of better things. Second, knowledge of our own times and to the state of our nation is a duty that we should undertake, not a detailed accumulation of facts and anecdotes, but a clear discerning of the spirit of the age in which we live. We have a responsibility to understand the times, if you will, to understand the times in which we live. Now that doesn't mean we need to spend hours and days reading books, searching everything you can on the internet, but we need to have such an understanding of Scripture that we can look out and discern the spirit of the age and the general climate of the culture so that we can live in it in a righteous way, so that we can testify the grace of God and call men to repentance where needed. Thirdly, religious profession and performance and even external reformation is inadequate to turn the Lord's favor. What do I mean by that? Look with me at, uh, if you're there in Jeremiah verse, chapter 6 and verse 19. Hear, O earth! Behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. And there are several other places where Jeremiah underscores this. All their efforts to appease the true and the living God while at the same time appeasing their false gods could not avail. Now, In the providence of God, he raises up this godly king, Jeremiah. He begins to purge the land of its idolatry. He begins to cleanse the temple and reestablish its appropriate use. But at the end of the day, if the hearts of the people are not changed, they revert back to their old ways. So religious profession and performance, even external reformation, is inadequate to turn the Lord's favor. The Lord works when and where and how he pleases. Now we read in the book of Proverbs, for the transgression of the land, many are the princes thereof. Okay? If the land is given to some transgression, some uh, spiritual evil, a lot of people fill in the void and they want to be the princes and they want to be the rulers. And it makes a mess of things. But, the proverb goes on, but when a man of wisdom and of understanding comes to rule, the state thereof shall be prolonged. And I think that's what we see in the case of Josiah. God raises up Josiah. He rules in uh, righteousness to the degree that he can and desires to. Okay? But, it doesn't last, does it? The state thereof prolonged. God holds off his judgment during the reign of Josiah, but it eventually comes because God's determination had been set and the heart of the people hadn't changed, however much they might have went and conformed to how things were on the outside. Fourthly, do not despise the chastenings and warnings of the Lord. See how Israel hardened themselves when God withheld the reign. When God brought these little tokens of his judgment, the people were numb and deaf to hear and to receive their instruction and its warnings. Young people especially, listen carefully. Every providence that you encounter reckon it either a mercy of God or a trumpeted warning. Or both. Or both. Fifthly, Do not let patriotism, emotion, or a sentimental idealism cloud your views of God or of his righteous workings in establishing and expanding his kingdom. Don't let it cloud your views of his justice or of the wisdom of his ways. Um, One verse, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 10. Then I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, You shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. Jeremiah said, Lord, you've deceived the people. You said they're going to have peace and rather violence. The sword is coming and judgment is coming. Okay? Jeremiah misunderstood the Lord's ways, and that's probably part of why he took him through the exercise of chapter 5 to show him the true state of the people of the nation so that he would know and understand that God was holy and just in his doings and in his dealings. Sixthly, by way of application, in in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22, we read this, See she from man whose breath is in his nostrils, For wherein is he to be accounted of? We have a tendency and a danger to want to trust in men and we'll be disappointed every time, won't we? Don't trust in men, even the best of men. Love them, esteem them in Christ, in love. But that's not the source of our trust. We're not trusting in their wisdom. We're not trusting in them. Ultimately, our trust should be in the true and the living God. Always, first and foremost. Cease trusting in men. They'll disappoint you every time. They'll dishearten you every time. I think I'm going too long. Two more things. Where are we at? How does this apply to us living uh, in the day and age in which we live? How does it apply to us In the church, how does it apply to us uh, as a nation? I'm going to read a quote, and then I will explain where it comes from. He is describing the sad state of affairs in his nation, which, by the way, is our nation. He's describing the sad state of affairs and says this, Do not take this lightly. Do not take this lightly. It is a horrible thing for a man like myself, to look back and see my country and my culture to go down the drain in my own lifetime. It is a horrible thing that 60 years ago you could move across this country and almost everyone, every non-Christian, would have known what the gospel was. A horrible thing that 40 to 50 years ago our culture was built on the Christian consensus and now we are in an absolute minority. Now, that's a telling statement. but let me give it more force. This is Francis Schaeffer writing in 1969. How much more in our day would we say? It's, it's a grievous thing, a horrible thing to see our nation dissipate the way it has, to gone the way it has. For the older among us, you've seen this in your lifetime. For the younger, you might still say, well, I, I don't know, there's there's hope. Yes, there's hope. The gospel is our whole source of hope, right? God will build his church, okay? The seed of the word of God is going to grow. The mustard seed's going to grow. His kingdom's going to go to the ends of the earth. That's our hope. That God will yet accomplish his work and purpose for his honor and glory. But coupled with that, we should have something of a grievous heart, like Jeremiah did, weeping over his nation when he began to see more and more of its wickedness. Finally, I'm going. I began with a story. I'm going to end with a story. And this story comes out of the pages of history. <clears throat> My children are tired of hearing about this fellow. Stephen Riggs was a missionary to the Sioux Indian in this state of Minnesota. Came here in the 1830s, spent some 40 years, did tremendous work, translated the whole Bible into the Dakota language, uh, created a Dakota grammar, which is still used to this day. Okay? He did a great work. He spent, and most of his children followed after him as missionaries. One went to China. Several of them followed and stayed and worked among the Dakota people. One of his sons, Alfred, some years later, wrote about his experience growing up, uh, the only white people, so to speak, in Indian territory, and he says, my first serious impressions of life was that I was living under a great weight of something, and as I began to discern more clearly, I found this weight to be the all-surrounding, overwhelming presence of Of heathenism. And all the instincts of my birth and the culture of a Christian home set me at antagonism to it at every point. And he goes on and writes later. Excuse me. Excuse me. Next to our own home, we learned growing up to love the homeland in the states where our parents came from. His mother from uh, Massachusetts, his father From Ohio, you know, Ohio in his early days was even on the edge of the wilderness, if you will. Okay, we were taught to think about that. A longing desire to visit the states possessed us. We thought that there we should find a heaven on earth. This may seem a strange idea, but as you think of us, engulfed in heathenism and savage life, it should not seem so strange. It was like living at the bottom of a well with only one spot of brightness overhead. Of course, it would be natural to think that the upper world was all brightness and beauty. Thus, all our glimpses of another life than that of heathenism came from the States. There, all our ideas of Christianized society were located. The correspondence of our parents with friends left behind, the pages of the magazines and papers of the monthly mail, and the yearly boxes of supplies were the tangible tokens which in our innocent minds awaken visions of the wonderful world of civilization and culture in the East. When the number of our years got well past the single figures, then we went to the States to carry on the education begun at home. Then came the saddest disappointment of all our lives. We found we were yet in a good way from heaven. For me, the last remnant of this dream was effectually dispelled when I came to teach a Sabbath school in a backcountry neighborhood where the people were the driftwood of Kentucky and Egyptian Illinois. Thenceforth, the land of the Dakotas seemed more like the land of promise to me. From that time, the claims of the work in which my parents were engaged grew upon my mind. And he goes on to say, What is the point? The point is, he grew up engulfed in heathenism and he had this idealistic view that where Christianity had made its mark, left its mark on society, surely that was a golden city, a heaven on earth. But when he came to see it in person and for real, he realized, here we have no resting place. Here is not our home, this is not the place. And so it was for Jeremiah. His idealism was shattered. And at the end of it, we could despair, couldn't we? We could despair except what? Except we believe to see the light of the Lord in the land of the living. The gospel still is making its triumphs. Glory in every sentence you heard of the conversion of a sinner. It may be only one or two here and there. but Let us rejoice in it. God is building his kingdom. All praise and glory to his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and pray that you would leave its impression upon us uh, that we would not rest our hopes uh, in culture, we would not rest our hopes in men, we would not rest our hopes in anything, Mm -hmm. but that the gospel is the power of God under salvation to everyone that believeth. Mm -hmm. Oh, Father further that work according to your promise, promises given to us under the new covenant and promised in types and shadows under the old. Fulfill your word and glorify your name and may men give you the praise and glory that is due you at every turn. And especially at this season of the year, would men not just uh, sing the carols, but inquire what these things mean. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.